Hello, and welcome back to Murder Sandwich, a true crime and mystery podcast hosted by me, Vicki James. Today is our 13th episode, and I'll be doing today's Hands Solo, and it'll be about the disappearance of Maura Murray. So I did start a new kind of thing on my Instagram where a few times a week I'm going to be doing something called the Mini Mowdown. Don't make fun of me for the title. It's the best I could come up with. And basically, it's just going to be covering some like true crime, like fun facts or trivia or just... So today was my first post, and it was about how there is actually a section of Yellowstone National Park in Idaho where you can like legally technically murder someone because there's like a dividing line for jurisdictions. So apparently there's like a gap this guy found in 2005, and technically there's no jurisdiction there. So anyway... Check out my Instagram at Murder Sandwich Podcast if you do want to get any updates about the podcast or, you know, see these mini mowdowns I'm doing. So, yeah, just check it out. I know I had a little bit of a break and I did not post when I said I was going to, but it was actually totally my bad. And I was supposed to take my podcast equipment with me on a girl's trip and I forgot it. So, um, there was no episode because of that. But, We are back to regular programming. No more vacations for me for quite a while now. And that's that. So thanks everyone for your patience. So Moira went missing in February of 2004 and unfortunately is still missing today, 17 years later. With little to no answers about what happened to Moira, still her family is waiting for some type of solution. So go grab your favorite sandwich and let's mow down on some true crime. Moira was born on May 4th, 1982, and was born in Hanson, Massachusetts, in the USA, and she was the fourth child that was born to Fred and Lori Murray. She had an older brother named Fred, and then two older sisters named Kathleen and Julie, and then a younger brother named Kurt. So the entire family was raised as Irish Catholic. That was their deemed religion, so they were quite devout in, in that religion. When Moira was six, her parents would actually divorce, and Moira would primarily live with her mom, Lori. Moira ended up graduating from Whitman Hanson Regional High School, where she was the star athlete on the school's track team. She was quite successful in track and running. She quite enjoyed it, and therefore she ended up getting accepted into the United States Military Academy in West Point, New York. So she ended up moving there after she graduated high school, and she would end up studying chemical engineering there for the first three semesters. But after her freshman year, she had a little bit of a change of heart, and she ended up transferring to the University of Massachusetts in Amherst to study nursing. So she took a little bit of a change there and decided she did not really like chemical engineering. So we're going to go through the few months before her disappearance and kind of go through a timeline. So in November of 2003, this was three months before she disappeared, Maura admitted to using a stolen credit card to order food from several restaurants, including one in Hadley, Massachusetts. The charge was continued to December the following month, but the judge ended up saying that it would be dismissed after three months of good behavior. So essentially she was on like a light version of probation. 
Now, I know what you're thinking is how did she use this like stolen credit card in nowadays technology, maybe? Because just a reminder, like it is 2003, 2004, you know, social media is not super big then. You know, people are just starting to use cell phones. So this is way different than it is today, which is crazy because it really is only 17 years ago. But back then, they used to actually have like a credit card machine and they, I don't even want to call it a machine, but you'd put your credit card on this machine and you would push a lever over to one side and then back. And it was essentially copy what your credit card number and everything looked like on your actual credit card. So apparently she found a receipt that had this like copy of someone's credit card and that's what she used in order to order food from these several restaurants. So that's how she got caught. Fast forward a little bit. So this is four days prior to her disappearance. This is the evening of February 5th of 2004. Moira ended up speaking on the phone with her older sister, Kathleen, while she was on duty at her campus security job. She wasn't really like a security person. She was kind of the person that would sit at the front door of one of the doors of the university and would just check people's like cards and make sure they were dinging in properly and making sure there was nothing, you know, suspicious going on. But the phone call with her sister was mainly discussing Kathleen's relationship issues that she was having with her fiance and she was quite like upset in this phone call so around 10 30 p.m she was still on her shift she apparently ended up breaking down into tears and when her supervisor came out and saw her apparently Moira was very zoned out acting very spaced out like distant and was basically like not reacting and was like almost unresponsive. So her supervisor ended up walking her back to her dorm room around 1.20 a.m. And when she was asked what was wrong, all she would respond with was my sister. And that's it. So the contents of this phone call actually remained unknown until October of 2017. And that's when Kathleen publicly explained the conversation I guess at the time of the phone call, Kathleen was just a recovering alcoholic and had actually just been discharged from a rehabilitation clinic that night. And her fiance picked her up from this rehabilitation clinic to take her home. And her fiance took her to the liquor store like right after. So that resulted in just, you know, a really like mentally unstable time for her, which I don't even blame her because... Like, what kind of supportive fiancé does that, I guess? But, like, whatever, that's my personal opinion. So I can kind of understand maybe that she didn't want to release the contents of that phone call. Maybe she didn't want people to judge her or know about her addiction issues or however that may be. But regardless, we found out about this in October of 2017. So on Saturday, February 7th, we're now two days before she disappeared, Moira's father, Fred, actually would arrive in Amherst to visit her for the weekend. And he told investigators that he went up there to help her go car shopping because her car that she was driving was just like a piece of crap, apparently, and he wanted to get her something a little bit nicer. And so they went shopping that Saturday afternoon. And then later they went to dinner together with a friend of Moira's and then Moira ended up dropping Fred off at his motel room and he lent her his brand new Toyota Corolla to go to a dorm party 
some people do say that they find this really weird because there are reports that he also took her to a liquor store. But she was 21, so she can like legally drink. It's not like he booted for her. But I don't find it unusual that he lent her the Toyota Corolla. We'll get into like later what happens, but I think it's under the assumption that maybe she would just drive it back to the dorm and then she would sleep in her dorm that night. So... I don't find it weird, so if you guys do listen to any, if you listen to any podcasts and they have their opinion about that being unusual, I totally respect it. I I just disagree. It, it was a very popular opinion when I was researching this case, but I don't find it weird. Moving on. <laughs> so she arrived at this party at 10.30 p.m., and at 2.30 a.m., so this is now Sunday, February 8th, she left the party And at 3.30 a.m., as she was driving back to her father's motel room, she struck a guardrail on Route 9 in Hadley and caused approximately $10,000 in damages to her dad's brand new car. The car was towed, and she was driven back to her father's motel by the tow truck driver, and there was absolutely no police involvement. So we do not know if she was intoxicated. We don't know anything like that. And like I just said, maybe she just last minute ended up wanting to drive there i'm not sure why she just didn't stay at her dorm i'm not sure about those details she arrives back at her dad's motel and at 4 49 a.m there was a cell phone call placed to her boyfriend whose name was bill roche from her father's phone um, and we never learned the contents of this phone call it's never been reported so it's a little weird So the next morning, you know, this is when Fred wakes up and learns about the damage to his vehicle. And he does quickly learn that it's totally covered under his insurance. So he ends up renting a car and he drops Moira off at the university and then he leaves for Connecticut. So at 11.30 p.m. that night, Fred calls Moira to remind her to obtain accident forms from the DMV. And then they agreed to talk the following night to discuss the forms and fill out the insurance claim. And this would be the last day that Fred would speak or see his daughter ever. So now we're going to get into her disappearance. So just after midnight on Monday, February 9th, Moira, so she is 21, she used a computer to search MapQuest. For anyone who doesn't know what MapQuest is, it's pre-Google. It's pretty much the first version of what we now know as Google Maps. It was a direction website. So she was looking for directions to the Berkshires, which is a mountain range close by where she's located in the Appalachian Mountains. And she also wanted instructions to Burlington, Vermont. So the first reported contact anyone had with her that day was at 1 p.m. And this is when she emailed her boyfriend, Bill, and said, I love you, stud. I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking too much of anyone. I promise to call you today, though. Love you, Moira. Right after this, she also made a phone call inquiring about renting a condo at the same Bartlett, New Hampshire condo association with which her family had vacationed before in the past. This phone call lasted about three minutes, and all that was ever really reported and that I could find was that the owner just never rented the condo to Moira. I'm not sure if he talked to her, she left a message, but no condo was ever rented to her. 
So at 1.13 p.m., Moira called a fellow nursing student. Again, unknown reasons. We're not sure what happened in that phone call. Shortly after that, at 1.24, Moira emailed a work supervisor at the nursing school, and this is when she said she would be out of town for a week due to a death in the family. This would then cover her school and her work because it was all in the same nursing school. But unfortunately, like, she lied. Like, there was no one in her family that had died. There was no family emergency. There was nothing. And she just told her supervisor that she would contact them when she returned. So shortly after that, at 2.05, Moira called a number which provides, like, recorded information about booking hotels in Stowe, Vermont. This call lasted about five minutes. She didn't actually speak to anyone, though. It, it's legitimately just an information service. So she was just listening to prompts on the phone. So again, shortly after that, at 2.18, so, like, about 15 minutes, she called Bill and left a voice message promising him that they would talk later, and this was about one minute. So 3.30, this is when she finally drives off campus in her black 1996 Saturn sedan, and classes had actually been canceled that day due to a pretty bad snowstorm. So it gives you an idea of just what the weather was like. Ten minutes later, she withdrew $280 from a local ATM, and video footage showed that she was alone. She then drove by to a nearby liquor store, and she purchased about $40 worth of alcohol, and this included Bailey's, Kahlua, vodka, and then a box of Franzia wine. Honestly, $40 for all of that? I wish. Just saying. Just saying. She also picked up the accident report forms like she spoke to her dad about. And then all footage from the liquor store and all of that also shows that she was alone. So Moira left Amherst between 4 and 5 p.m. after these errands and presumably via the Interstate 91 North. She called to check her voicemail at 4.37 p.m. and this was the last recorded use of her cell phone at all. Just after 7 p.m., a Woodsville, New Hampshire resident heard a loud thump outside her house. Through the window, she could see a car up against the snowbank around Route 112, also known as the Wild... Amonusuk Road. I probably butchered that. I'm sorry to anyone listening in Massachusetts. I'm sorry. <laughs> so the resident called the Grafton County Sheriff's Department at 7:27 p.m. to report the accident. So according to this 911 log, the woman claimed to have seen a man smoking a cigarette inside the car, but later the resident recanted this statement and that she had not seen a man or any person smoking, but rather had seen what appeared to be just a red light glowing inside the car, like maybe a cell phone. I totally know what they mean because back in those days, there was car lighters in the in the car, as well as, you know, when you're puffing on a cigarette, you see the red ember at the end. So she might have just seen a light in the car or maybe from Moira opening her cell phone and just assumed it was one of those two red items, right? So it might just be the first thing she thought about. But yeah, anyway, she recanted. So we'll take that with you, Will. At about the same time, so about the same time that night, another neighbor also saw the car and saw someone walking around it. And then she witnessed a third neighbor that she knows pull up alongside the vehicle. And that neighbor is a school bus driver who was returning home. And he stopped by, asked her how she was doing. She seemed fine. He reported that she, you know, she was not bleeding, not visibly injured, not visibly impaired, but seemed very cold and shivering. He offered to go telephone for help, like, immediately. He did not have a cell phone. And she just said, like, oh, please do not contact the police. 
in one report, it even says that she, like, pleaded and begged him to not contact the police. And she assured him that she had already called AAA. The weird thing about this, though, is the bus driver knew there was no cell phone service. So he left, like, kind of just feeling really uneasy about it. So he continued home and called the police anyway. And his call was received by the same sheriff's department at 7.43 p.m. He was unable to see Maura's car when he made the call. He was just too far away. But he noticed that several cars had passed down the road before the police arrived. So he knows that people saw her on the road. So another local resident ended up driving home from work. And she claims that she passed the scene at 7.37. What, five minutes before the bus driver called 911. And she saw a police SUV parked face-to-face with Moira's car. She pulled over very briefly and did not see anyone inside or outside either of the cars, so she decided to return home. But this witness statement totally contradicts any of the official police logs because the police state that they didn't arrive until 7.46, like nine minutes later. So the police ended up starting to already go there after the first 911 call, which was at 727. That's super weird. They arrived nine minutes later. Uh, a Haver Hill police officer arrives and he looks around and there's no one inside or outside the vehicle. And he notices the car had been impacted by this tree on the driver's side of the vehicle, severely damaging the left headlight and pushing the car's radiator into the fan. So it was just totally inoperable. So she couldn't drive away at all. The car's windshield was also cracked on the driver's side and then both airbags had been deployed And then the weirdest part is the car was locked. It was locked. So inside and outside the car, he ended up discovering red stains that looked like to be red wine. Like that red wine was spilled inside and outside the car. And then inside the car, he saw an empty beer bottle and then a damaged box of that Franzia wine on the rear seat. So in the car once they get in there and discover it, is Moira packed clothing, toiletries, textbooks from school, lots of birth control pills. And then when her room was searched later, police also discovered most of her belongings were already in boxes and her paintings and all her art and like wall coverings were removed from the wall. Kind of like suggesting she was like moving or something. And then on top of all these boxes was an email printed from... Moira's boyfriend, Bill, indicating trouble in their relationship. I couldn't find anything else about this email. So, like, I don't know if it was, like, an email from Moira to herself or an email from her boyfriend to Moira or, like, a conversation they were having. I'm not entirely sure of the details of that. They also found in the car was a triple A card issued to Moira, a blank accident report form, CDs, makeup, diamond jewelry, and those driving directions. Moira's favorite stuffed animal was in there. And then there's also a book, which is called Not Without Peril. It's actually a book about mountain climbing in the White Mountains. So remember that later. White Mountains. That comes up later. So missing was basically her purse so her debit card wasn't there any credit card cell phone and it's never been located ever at all police also later reported that some of the alcohol Amora had purchased was also missing so i'm not sure what we know the wine wasn't missing but i'm not sure what else wasn't 
So between 8 and 8.30, a contractor returning home from Franconia in, in New Hampshire saw a young person moving quite quickly on foot eastbound on Route 112. It's about six to eight kilometers or four to five miles east of where her vehicle was discovered. And he noted that the young person was wearing jeans, a dark coat, and a light colored hood. This was not reported at all (laughs) until three months later because he was just really confused with the dates when it got announced that she disappeared he thought that maybe he had seen that the day before like the day after irregardless it was reported but it wasn't until three months later the responding officer and the bus driver they ended up driving around the area and they searched for mora and then just before 8 p.m the ems and fire truck arrived to clear the scene at 8 49 the car had been towed to a local garage and at 9.30 p.m., the responding officer left. And then Moira wouldn't be referred to as missing until noon the next day, which is basically 24 hours after she actually went missing. So this would be February 10th. So at 12.36 the following day, there was a be on the lookout report for Moira issued by the police. And she was reported wearing a dark coat, jeans, and a black backpack. A voicemail was then left on her dad Fred's home answering machine at 3.20 p.m. stating that her car had been found abandoned and he was actually working out of state so he did not receive this call. At 5 p.m. one of her older sisters, I'm not sure if it was Kathleen or Julia, she actually contacted Fred to tell him of the situation and then he contacted the Haverhill Police Department and was told that if Mora was not reported safe by the following morning, that the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department would officially start a search of the area. I don't fully agree that they shouldn't just search the area right away. I, I know it's all about resources, but you just, like, I always wonder, like, what, what could have been found? Like, you give people a whole day to clean up their shit. So on February 11th, Fred arrived before dawn to Haverhill, and then the search for Morris started at 8 a.m. A police dog actually did track her scent there at about 100 yards east of where the vehicle was discovered but he lost the scent this suggests that she left in the area like with another car that's why he lost it and then at 5 p.m mora's boyfriend bill and his parents arrive in haverhill he was interrogated in private initially and then was joined by his parents for questioning he's not really brought up again after so they must have ruled him out immediately it kind of makes sense he didn't really live in the area but At 7 p.m., the police said they believed that Maura came to the area either to run away or to attempt suicide, but her family and her boyfriend and everyone just totally do not agree with that, and just, they can't see her doing that. So Moira's boyfriend, they actually, like, him and his family flew to Haverhill um, from where they're from, and he turned off his cell phone during the flight, and then when he turned it back on when he arrived in Haverhill, he got a voicemail. And he believed that it was the sound of Moira sobbing. And the call was traced to a calling card issued to the American Red Cross. So, like, what is that? What is that? I read that and was like, I got the heebie-jeebies. Like, immediately. Let me know if you guys got them too. (laughs) On February 12th at 3.05 p.m., so this is now a couple days after she's been missing, the police reported that Moira might be heading to the Kankamugas Highway area and that she was listed as endangered and possibly suicidal as well. 
So 10 days after her disappearance, this is when the FBI joined the investigation and quickly after was another search of the area using air and ground measures. This was when Moira's older sister actually found a ripped pair of white underwear in the field next to where Moira's vehicle was discovered. They actually did DNA testing on it and it did not belong to Moira. Thank God. Ugh, that would have been awful. Could you imagine being that sister? Awful. So at the end of February, the police returned the items found in Moira's car to her family. And on March 2nd, the family checked out of the motel in Haverhill as they were just exhausted from the search. They basically were there for a whole month. So they returned home. But Fred actually did return nearly almost every single weekend to continue searching. And in April, the police actually had to contact him about complaints of him trespassing on private property. I think that's so sad. Like, he was very determined to find his daughter and obviously cared about her a lot and... I don't know, just, like, see her and talk to her and be one of the last people. Like, it seems like she had a closer relationship with her dad almost, just based on the little information that... And I say little because I obviously don't know this person's life, but, like, based on what I read, her father did take, like, very huge measures to make sure that this was, like, staying in the media and stuff. So I feel like he was a little bit closer or maybe blames himself because he was the last one to see her. Um, I'm very close with my father, so I could, like, I literally could not imagine what my dad would do. He would just tear up the whole countryside, I'm pretty sure, so. So on July 1st, police retrieved items found in the vehicle from her family for forensic analysis. I'm not sure why they didn't do this in the first place, but anyway. On July 13th, a one-mile radius search was performed by nearly 100 volunteers and searchers. And this was the first one that was actually had no snow on the ground. They were mainly looking for her black backpack, but they did not find anything conclusive, unfortunately. So this is when things get, like, pretty juicy. So this is really weird. So listen up. So this is late 2004 now. So we're not even a year that she's been missing. So this is late 2004. And this man gives Fred, so this is Maura's dad, this rusty, like, stained knife. And he says to Fred, this belonged to my brother. And my brother has a criminal past. And, you know, he lived less than a mile from where your car, like, your daughter's car was discovered. And he claims that his brother and his brother's girlfriend were acting super weird after the disappearance of Moira and that he thought that his brother used this knife to kill Moira. Several days after the knife was given to Fred, apparently this man's brother scrapped his vehicle, which was a Volvo. And then family members of them just said it was all a lie because that guy wanted to get reward money. I just don't know if I believe that because I don't know. You're really going to like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he hates his brother. I don't, I don't know. Family dynamics. Like I don't even want to get into it, but (laughs) maybe he hates his brother, but I don't know. It seems a little suspicious and it comes up a little bit later. So just, you know, put a pin in that. Okay. So we have a pin in white mountain and you have a pin in this rusty knife guy. So we'll get back into Fred. Fred just never stops searching. Like I said, in 2005, he petitions the governor to help with the search. He also appeared on the Montel Williams show to help publicize the case. And he also organized a service to be held where her car was found on the one-year anniversary. And then he also met another governor there to, to help and introduce himself to help with the case. 
late 2005, Fred ends up filing a suit to several law enforcement agencies with the motive of seeing the files to the case. I don't think he won that, unfortunately. And someone also did write on a forum that year dedicated to the disappearance. And he stated that he saw a black backpack in a restroom along the Route 112 highway, about 30 miles from where Moira's car was found. So police did come out and and say that they were aware of the backpack, direct quote, and they never said anything else. So, you know, did they find the backpack? Did they go out and search it? How much longer did this guy say that he saw it? Just what happened to this backpack? And through researching this case, I don't know if it was the time it was in, or really what's going on, but it just seems like there's a lot of loose ends that don't really get tied up, at least to public knowledge. So I'm just very curious like where their priorities were in this investigation, and I think we are about to find out. So the investigation takes a little bit of a jump now, and we're going to be talking about, you know, 2006 now to really present. In 2006, uh, the new Hampshire League of Investigators, which is about 10 retired police officers, and then the Molly Bish Foundation. Now, I looked this up because I would actually never heard of the Molly Bish Foundation, and it was created after the murder of Molly Bish. And she was a 16-year-old who disappeared while working as a lifeguard in her hometown of Warren, Massachusetts. And her remains were actually found three years later in a neighboring county, and her case still remains unsolved. So that foundation and then the 10 retired police officers, they all started working on the case in 2006. In 2007, a $75,000 reward for information was presented by the Arkansas Let's Bring Them Home. To this day, that reward has never been used. And then I'm jumping back a little bit here. I just remembered that they did do a two-day search in October of 2006. And the volunteers there led a two-day search within miles of where her car was found. And in this closet of this like house that's like approximately one mile from the crash site, they took cadaver dogs there, and these cadaver dogs allegedly went bonkers, possibly identifying that, that there's been presence of human remains there. So get this. Are you guys ready? Are you ready to hear this? That house used to belong to the man that was implicated by his brother with the rusty knife. No joke. I'm not kidding. That's where the cadaver dogs ended up going bonkers. I can't believe I almost forgot that. So anyway, the following year is when they do the $75,000 reward. So in 2009, the case was transferred to the cold case unit. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of information hadn't come out of gas, which is really sad. 
And then the year after that, Fred did come out and publicly criticize the police investigation for treating the disappearance as a missing persons case and not so much a criminal matter. And he called on the FBI to rejoin the investigation. So we're going to jump about four years here. And this is now the 10th anniversary of Moira's disappearance. So this is February 4th, 2014. And this is when Fred came out and he did say that he believed that his daughter was dead and that she had been abducted the night of her disappearance in that nine minute window. And then in February of 2019, we're now on the 15th anniversary of her disappearance. Fred reiterated his belief that his daughter was dead and he you know, presented that he had suspicions about that nearby house that the cadaver dogs had responded to. And he's quoted in saying, that's my daughter, I do believe, which is very sad. In early April of 2019, they did do excavation on the basement of that house. Fred actually petitioned to do it prior, but the owners of that house wouldn't cooperate. And so it was sold around this time. And the new owners did cooperate which is very nice of them unfortunately the search turned up nothing like nothing at all so i am not sure how cadaver dogs work like if say moira's body was on the basement floor for a couple weeks or a few days do you think the cadaver dogs would like pick up that scent of her just like laying there is that do you think maybe what they turned up and it's not so much her but maybe just like her scent anyway just a thought i'm not really sure this isn't like a pretty rural area right like it's in this really small town like there's just forestry everywhere so really like if that okay like let's just tread on this for a minute here is if that ends up being what happened to her that guy obviously knew his brother ratted him out so he's not gonna keep her in the house there's all this forestry everywhere right so it's, in, it's an interesting theory if, if that's what actually happened to her. So now we're actually jumping to this year. So in early of 2021, the tree that was at the site of where she was last seen, it actually was marked with a blue ribbon as a memorial and has been this whole town, but it was cut down earlier this year by the property owner. I'm not sure the reasons. I'm not sure if it's rotten or anything, but if it was just like personal reasons, then like, I think that's so rude. That's just me though. So rude. So shortly thereafter, Moira's family actually put in a request to have a new Hampshire historical marker placed at the site. And unfortunately, it was declined. It was declined. And I feel so bad. Like that, like how rude. I hope that guy realizes that like, her I don't know her memory is just I don't know I live in a, a city with lots and lots of car accidents and I even have a close friend that passed away in a car accident here and there's just crosses and everything like everywhere and I think it just you know cements the fact that like people will always remember you and that people should be should know that you know someone unfortunately did lose a life where you are and that, you know, you should think about them and maybe have a little thought towards them or something. And so it's just really sad that they just don't get that. Like, I'm hope, I hope they're able to put, like, maybe a cross or something there. And that owner isn't, like, just a rude dick. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. That just made me really sad when I read that. It made me really sad. 
So on September 14th, 2021, I know, right? Like just like two weeks ago, a bone fragment was actually found on Loon Mountain in Lincoln, New Hampshire, about 16 miles east southeast of the site of Moira's crash along Route 112. So Moira had actually been to the mountain before and had knowledge of the area, according to one of her sisters. And then according to a statement, the bone fragments are pretty small. And unfortunately, they're going to take anywhere from two to seven months to identify. And now this area is currently being totally investigated. Let's get into some conspiracy theories. So not so much conspiracy theories. Those are just some like additional notes and theories that I found in my little research here. So what I thought was interesting is that this case, which I learned about this case a while ago, I was listening to a podcast and I can't remember which one. It was probably True Crime Garage. If you haven't heard of it, it's probably one of my favorite true crime podcasts out there other than my own and really great guys. Love them. And anyway, this case is cited as being one of the first crime mysteries of the social media age, because the day that Moira went missing, Facebook was only like five days old. And this was the first case that was really talked about on forums and discussion pages and, you know, MySpace and a couple other really early social media platforms actually did have pages dedicated to Moira. And this is when the internet really, really like banded together and and had a discussion about it. So I I thought that was really interesting. And nothing is really said of her boyfriend, Bill, like I said before, but I did see that apparently since her disappearance, he has been involved in several physical and or sexual abuse related incidents. So I'm not really saying anything or tying that together, but just, you know, that little, little grain of salt there to add to the mix. So a couple theories. One theory is that she actually ran away to get from her abusive relationship and that she's alive and living in Quebec. I don't know. I 2004 was a little bit of a different time. I talk about this with my friends a lot about how I think it'd be so hard to just like run away and start a new life now. But back in 2004, maybe it was easier. I don't know if I entirely think this is true. Like I actually think that she would have contacted her dad or that if her dad knew that she was alive, he wouldn't be so like so in your face like trying to keep this alive in this case alive I think he would have kind of gone into the shadows a little bit so I don't I actually don't believe that she ran away at all there's another kind of weird theory so apparently she was actually dating Bill and then also her assistant to the coach of her university track team and his name is Hossein Baghdadi And apparently police spoke to Baghdadi after she disappeared and he reported that Moira implied her disappearance during a private conversation that they had. So this theory that's proposed is that when Moira disappeared, she was apparently going to go to a cabin owned by the university outing club that was located in the White Mountains and that Baghdadi frequently joined the club on similar trips. So if this theory is true, then that means that if this person maybe saw her running down the road, that she was running towards White Mountain to get to this cabin. But if this was even remotely a possibility, I feel like it would have come out way sooner. She had to have had told at least one person she was going to go to this cabin because she people would have it to be there. She'd have to get like let in. I'm assuming it's just not some like random open cabin in the middle of this mountain, right? 
So I don't know if I believe that. I feel like more people would have come out and been like, she was going there. Anyway, let me know what you think about that. I think it's kind of weird. So another theory is that she was just disorientated from the accident and went into the woods and just unfortunately perished due to exposure. But again, there were no footprints found, no items, no body, and the dog tracked her scent to the middle of the road, right? That suggests that she was taken in a car, not gone into the woods. I don't know. Let me know what you think about that. What I personally think is I do agree with her dad. I think that in those nine minutes, I think that someone stopped. And I think that they offered her help maybe, or maybe, I don't know. And I think, I think something funky happened, unfortunately. I do not think that Moira is unfortunately with us on this living plane anymore. And unfortunately, she didn't make it. And I really wish that her family could get closure especially her dad. It just makes me really sad. I am so close with my dad and I just couldn't imagine like just that happening. It just is really sad. Very interesting that the rest of her family aren't super vocal, just her dad, but I'm not sure really what that says. There wasn't a ton about her childhood. Usually I go into that a little bit further and I didn't really have a lot of information today, so... But let me know what you think happened to Moira. Do you believe any of these weird conspiracy theories out there? Do you think she was heading to White Mountain? I think it's very interesting that she had this book about White Mountain. And then this bone fragment is found at White Mountain. Like, it's all very, I don't know. Like, is it just a coincidence? This case does take many turns. And honestly, there's a lot of information I didn't even get into. There are so many podcasts about Moira, a a book, and I believe an upcoming documentary is actually being done based on one of the podcasts done about her. So if you honestly want to dig any deeper into this one, I welcome you to look into it because I heard about it a long time ago and it's always interests me. I really, really hope that in my lifetime we do get some sort of closure based on this disappearance, but you know, we're heading into 20 years, so you know, crazier things have happened, so I'm not going to lose hope. So that is going to conclude my podcast today. So thank you for listening. And again, if you guys want to check out anything to do with the podcast or you want to, you know, chime in on my mini Mowdown series I'm doing, then my Instagram handle is Murder Sandwich Podcast. And we will be back next Tuesday with a new podcast topic that I have not chosen yet because I have a few options I am going towards. So thank you again for all the support. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and I will see you next Tuesday. Bye.